0: Welcome to the Supervisory Development Course podcast from the University of Minnesota. This episode is the panel and Q&A section of a webinar that aired on April 11th, 2019. The panelists discuss components of compensation strategy, constraints and barriers around pay, and common misconceptions surrounding rewards and compensation. Please note that the content of the podcast covers pay for non-contract employees, since labor unions have contracts which govern their pay. For more information and resources on rewards and compensation, visit humanresources.umn.edu. And for more information on supervisory development, visit supervising.umn.edu. So at this point, we're going to turn it over to our experts, uh, Brandon, Mary, and Ken. They're going to answer your questions the best that they can that have come from some of the work being done here at the U. We hope this, we realize the discussion is this is not the end. It's not like we, we find the answer to all of our problems today. But we do hopefully uh, leave today being more informed about what it is that we're wondering about. So we'll hope, hopefully we'll clear up some common misconceptions about compensation at the U. As you're listening to our experts, feel free to submit any questions you have in the Q&A so we can address whatever you're wondering about. So Mary, thank you for being here today. <laughs> and so as our compensation director here at the U, Um, I think there are some questions I'm sure that you'll be able to help our audience uh, think about maybe more uh, in a more informed way. One of the questions that I wanted to start with today is, I really love this question because I I think it's probably on the mind of a lot of our supervisors, which is if you have an employee who walks into your office or meets you at the water cooler or wherever and says, why aren't I paid at midpoint? Like midpoint, that's the magic word, right? Mm -hmm. What is it that a supervisor can say to them to help them understand kind of kind of the bigger picture of, of that question?
1: Sure, um, I think I would start <clears throat> by first saying um, that the midpoint is a single point in a very broad continuum. Yes, the midpoint, that will tell you what is being paid in the outside market, um, the median of the outside market, but again, there's a broad continuum, um, low to high, that's represented by our minimum all the way up to our maximum of how people are paid. So try not to focus on just that one point. Um, After establishing that, I think I would then start to talk about how a person gets to that midpoint level is by demonstrating that full mastery. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, you might even argue that once they demonstrate that full mastery, even being at, around, near, just beneath is still very competitive. So that's a a conversation. I don't know if the person that's approaching you is at full mastery or not, but that would be a second factor. Mm -hmm. So we've got this broad continuum. Mm -hmm. We're not focusing on one item. And then you're gonna make that journey as you reach full mastery. Um, I would also bring in the conversation that was part of this presentation. Let's talk about everything else. (laughs) So let's talk about um, work-life balance. Let's talk about our mission, benefits. Um, Really getting them to maybe even talk to you at that point about what is important to them. That might be the opportunity to find out more, uh, especially if they're expressing some degree of dissatisfaction here in some form or fashion. Um, And then there is that last factor, which is um, we'll use this range to help us guide pay decisions. But anything we can do, it's always based on that ability to pay, that budget factor. So, again, there's a broad continuum, midpoints one item. You get there with full mastery or you get close to it even with full mastery. Let's talk about the more broad platform of things that you you get from working
0: here.
1: And, um, you know, maybe there's a point to do some planning a year or two out. But if you don't have money right then and there, that's probably important to talk about what else you might be able to do.
0: Great, thanks, Mary. That's really I love the way that you that you uh, drew in that to look at that as an opportunity, like that moment as an opportunity mm-hmm. to, to ask, like, well, what is it that yeah you know it's not always about pay. I it think takes a lot kind of courage
1: of, to come forward. I mean, yeah. for an employee to come forward to their supervisor, that takes some courage, mm-hmm. and so you want to honor right. that process too.
0: Yeah, great, thank you. So another question I thought that I would ask you while you're here with us um, that I think would be on the mind of a lot of our supervisors is. When you want when they want to deliver pay adjustments that they feel are needed, but there's no new money for increases, how can they to kind of deliver on that, Kind of deliver these pay adjustments that that they want to make yet feeling like they can't because there's no new money available? Is there um, a, something <coughs> to, to think about
1: there? When I get asked that question, I always start, and I don't know why I just feel it's important to say that this is probably the most common. Um, concern or constraint that you see at all organizations, all institutions. Um, So not just here at the U. Right. I've worked other places and I don't see that we are any more constrained in that space than anybody else. Um, That doesn't make it easier, but I think it's very common and very consistent. So uh, managers just, I think, feel that they never have enough money to give all the increases that they think would be deserved Mm -hmm. or or, um, important to give. So what we do is we talk about a few different things. We'll talk about, um, you know, can you possibly maybe build a two-to-three-year plan? Mm -hmm. So if you've got some needed adjustments, maybe your fiscal year is half over, you don't have funds this year, can you start trying to forecast two-to-three years out and just inch towards closing that gap? Um, It's a bit uncomfortable, but we do usually talk to people, too, about um, what does your workforce look like? Are you able to get the work done mm-hmm. with fewer people? Mm-hmm. Um, should we be reimagining um, different types of skill sets or fewer people? You could look at opportunities where maybe there's some already planned retirements coming up, um, departures, looking at your key business processes that are the most cumbersome or time consuming. Is there any way to streamline those where you could get the work done with fewer people, aka? freeing up the resources Mm -hmm. for those that are still there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I just think that um, those two factors are probably the largest. But then, too, trying to think through if there are jobs or roles that are more highly critical, Mm that they are the difference maker Mm -hmm. in your department and Mm -hmm. its success. Mm -hmm. You can't do everything all at once. um, So maybe you start looking at those more. Very critical positions, especially if they're far behind market. Um, you know, just prioritizing mm-hmm. um, taking smaller groups of people and or spreading it out over longer periods of time, mm-hmm. and maybe it is done over a longer period of time with fewer people and different types of people in mm-hmm. that team That works so, those question.
0: Just to summarize, there's no easy answer. That's what I'm hearing. There's a lot of factors to consider. Yeah, there's
1: probably more as well. Those are the three that just come to my mind. One other one that probably comes to my mind is, um, especially if you've got some of these salary ranges that have been refined, when you do the merit increase process, the ability maybe to differentiate that pay can help move people up in the range more. Um, So that might be another item. But yeah, the the workforce, the time period, what's most critical, kind of prioritizing things. Great, thanks. So to our
0: audience, I'm mean, i sure a lot of things that Mary has just explained might have sparked additional questions. So again, feel free to put those into the Q&A and we can work towards clarification of anything that she mentioned um, in a few minutes. Thank you, Mary, for your input, I appreciate it. Ken, I'd like to move to you. So as our total compensation senior director here at the U, I think there are also some things that you could help our audience with some clarification. Um, One of the questions that I'd like to direct your way is about midpoint because I think there is a kind of are some common misconceptions around mm-hmm. what that means sure. and how we think about it. So my question for you today is: What are? is pretty basic. What are the most important things people need to remember when thinking about midpoint, max, and min here at the U? So I'm kind of thinking: What are some important sure. clarification or takeaways for that?
2: Well, and I think um, in a decentralized uh, public environment like this. Uh, and how we have handled midpoint and ranges in the past, prior to the job, family, market refinement. It's very understandable that people have these questions. The first thing to clarify is that a midpoint, a minimum, and a maximum for a range is market-based. It is external by definition. And there, there really is no discussion on that point. It is a basic compensation principle. Um, how do we determine what these um, ranges are and what the midpoint is? Um, is a uh, you know it is a robust, almost scientific process. I would say that deep compensation expertise brings to the table, and Mary and her team have that expertise. And what they do periodically is uh, is uh, go to market. Uh, there are surveys out there that are substantive traditional long-term year-over-year surveys that provide fact-based information on what employers as a whole in a geographic area or across peer institutions may be doing for different disciplines. And that is uh, input into a uh, platform that we use here and then we do our own analysis to determine what our ranges are but it is uh, a very, um, like I said, robust um, a factual process that is followed to provide that information. I think a more important thing is how do you use this information. I think mm-hmm. people do look at it as this is the answer and mm-hmm. it is not. It is a fact. It is a piece of information that informs us. Right. And I would tell managers that if they plan to have a conversation around this, it always um, is a fuller, richer conversation if you can tie it to your strategy for your department or the university. So if you can uh, work with your leadership team to have a story around how you look at your positions and your department and the work done therein. and even to the point where you're talking about what are our critical needs? um, What is some of our turnover? What are some of the challenges we're facing in our workforce planning? That goes hand in hand with what uh, the midpoint can tell you Um, because it's part of the story. It's not the whole story and it shouldn't even be our whole goal as employees and as an institution.
0: Thanks, Ken. Again, I'm sure that raised some other questions from sure. our audience and we'll we'll approach those as they come up. Mm-hmm. Um, great, that was a great summary. Um, another question that comes up commonly about midpoint again is is there a like a common recommendation on how far off from the midpoint mm-hmm. the you can be while still being competitive and you know attracting and retaining talent?
2: Well, I, I think that's a different answer depending on uh, the discipline. Mm-hmm. So Um, College and units have different needs, uh, different positions, and different job families have certain demand in the market, different levels of turnover, and that can really determine what your pay strategy is for a position and whether you are going to try to approach midpoint or you can pay below midpoint because there just isn't that kind of demand for a position or if it's highly critical maybe you even have to go above that sometimes Mm -hmm. to really fill a need. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, the the whole answer there is dependent on the situation really and the strategy you're putting in place, but again having that accurate information allows you to have a strategy that may actually be implemented and work in the future rather than having something that isn't based on the market um, and uh, where you're guessing a little more.
0: Great. Thank you for that, Ken. Um, and again, we'll come back to you with more questions as sure. they come up. Uh, one of my takeaways from both Mary and Ken so far has been that compensation strategy seems like everything. Like there's no way to just say, oh, midpoint, there's my answer. Or, you know, it's really about thinking hard about your yeah. department.
2: Well, and like, I think a lot of human resource principles and management of uh, a department, everything's interconnected. You know, it really is a sort of an ecosystem of different principles that you have to be knowledgeable about and ask for support, and if you're not, so you can adequately inform your employees. Yeah,
0: great. I think that's a really important takeaway from today. So thank you. Brandon, thank you for being here today, for joining us. Yeah. Um, so as our Senior Director of Leadership and Talent Development, I think there are some questions around comp um, that can, can we can direct your way, um, and you can, help our, again, help our audience with some clarification. So I think um, some of the questions that I'd like to ask you about are of this mastery, this concept of mastery. So, in your opinion, what are some variables that supervisors can use to assess whether the person, their employee, is approaching full mastery? And what would that look like?
3: Yeah. Well, if we certify them, then they're no, done. That's <laughs> it's actually a complicated. Wait, there isn't an easy
0: answer. Finally, I know. I wish, one. yeah, you know, I okay. wish there
3: was an easy answer. No, right. there there are some some factors to, to look at as a supervisor that can tell you. Um, you know, one key thing is it's really about performance over time. So, you don't want to just look at the big project that the person did this year and if that went really well, they're at mastery. You don't want to just look at recent performance over the last you know, mm-hmm. several months. Mm-hmm. It's really about performance over time and does the person consistently meet expectations for both the results as well as the behaviors, and, and that's a piece that um, sometimes we don't attend to as much here at the university, well actually a lot of organizations, is those behaviors. Um, so let's say you have a project and you really knocked it out of the park, well you know, did you accomplish it in a way that also met the expectations around the behaviors? Did you collaborate effectively, did mm-hmm. you communicate effectively, did you build partnerships mm-hmm. so that in the future uh, your next project will be as successful? So um, some of it is that, you know, another thing as a supervisor, some things that will you know be an indication that an employee is at or reaching mastery is that the feedback and coaching that you're providing is less focused on getting the day-to-day work done and more focused on longer-term development. Um, So when someone is still learning, as a supervisor, you're going to be spending a lot of time just helping them understand the day-to-day work, get it done, if they have some skill gaps that that they need day-to-day, you're going to be helping them with that. But once someone has reached mastery or beyond, they aren't going to need that kind of day-to-day help. So you'll find your coaching and feedback shifts to a longer-term view. Um, and you know, the other piece, too, is that um, when someone reaches mastery, they're more kind of able to make decisions more independently and know when they shouldn't, right? So they'll have a better sense for, when do I need to bring my supervisor in on this? And when can I just move forward with mm-hmm. something? Uh, when someone is earlier uh, in the process, more you know, learning, they not, may, may not necessarily know you know, when should I talk to my supervisor? When does my supervisor need to make this decision? When can I make this decision? So someone who's at mastery is going to have a, a good sense for what that is. So as a supervisor, you're going to trust that, okay, they know when to bring me in and, and not. So um, those would be some of the things that that you'll start to notice as someone reaches mastery. But again, if there's multiple pieces to it yeah. and it's really about over time. So don't just focus in on recent performance or you know, they did one thing really well, which mm-hmm. could be great, it's over time.
0: So it's not product, it sounds like it's not as product based as it might sound. Right. It's not about that, just how well did you do on that one project.
3: That's right, exactly. And and the other thing that's relevant here when we talk mm-hmm. about performance management is everybody tends to over assess their people, right? <laughs> and so when we do like review scores, right, when you have let's say a five point scale, and I have, like Mary, worked in lots of other organizations. and you always get the fours and fives, right? Everybody's a four or five. But aren't we? Uh, yeah, we are. I know we are. We're all awesome. Everybody is awesome in their own way, right? Yeah. But the, one of the things to keep in mind that's relevant for this is that most supervisors are going to tend to over-assess the, the level of mastery of their employees. Um, just as human nature, you know them, you okay. like them generally, you know, you want to, to help them and, 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 you know, give them the things that they want and, and that kind of thing. So there's kind of this element of it, too, to, to be thinking about what, what is the objective data that I have, I'm okay. um, not just my own gut instinct or how much I like the person. So,
0: okay. So that was going to be my next question yeah. is what advice would you give to a supervisor who might find themselves over assessing the mastery of an employee? So it sounds like be objective, find you know that objective data, whatever it looks like to kind of back up that, that assessment.
3: Yeah. And there, there's also a concept in performance management of calibration. Um, And that gets at, so you don't want to just have uh, a supervisor rating their employees in a vacuum, right? You want to Uh kind of road test that by having other managers or human resource business partners or others sort of, you know, maybe challenging, you know, the ratings or, you know, why did you rate the person this way? Can you give me the data, the examples to kind of back that up? Um, the, the best processes involve that kind of calibration, so it's not just on the supervisor. And the, one of the main reasons for that is, is because it counteracts this uh, tendency to kind of over-assess. And so when it comes to you know, the question of is this person in the mastery category, you know, don't just rely on your own evaluation as a supervisor, but you know, what are others experiencing? And some, sometimes people will even get formal feedback uh, on that. But that's another piece of it too, is, is getting that other perspective.
0: Great. Thank you. That was really helpful um, in kind of along the same lines of mastery. We talked about this a little bit in the webinar, but I think it's important to clarify um, what role does like seniority or credentials or education degree, what role do those play in determining mastery?
3: Yeah. So the short answer to that <laughs> is they don't, they don't play a direct role in mastery. And I
0: wonder if that surprises our
3: audience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, because we'd like to think so. And often, you know, if you have more experience, you are more likely to be in that mastery group. If you have certain academic credentials, maybe you're more likely to be there. But it is not a one-to-one uh, relationship. And so you should never rely on those things to tell you whether someone is at mastery and you know i think we've probably all seen people who you know give them six months of experience and they learn a ton other people in five years don't learn as much Mm -hmm. and that has to do with a whole variety of different things for example motivation if someone is really motivated to learn um, they may learn a whole lot in in six months or a year someone who's not really motivated is just checking the box in their job, they may not learn as much in five or six years. And when it comes to credentials, um, you know, academic degrees, um, it's the same kind of thing. Um, You can't necessarily assume that someone is able to translate the knowledge that they have from their academic degree into solving real-world problems. And I, I can attest to that. Mm-hmm. When I finished my PhD program and started working at a Fortune 500, I went in there thinking, I've published research, I've taught courses <laughs> on this, I've worked with some of the world-renowned experts in this area. Well, it took me six months to be able to say anything that made any sense to anybody yeah. because I got all this knowledge, but I, I couldn't use it at mm-hmm. first to, to solve any real problems at this organization. So it's about really the, the performance over time. And, and all of these things like years yeah. of experience and credentials can and ideally do contribute to that but you gotta look at the performance.
0: Thank you again that was very insightful. I want to give the three of you a chance if, if there's anything that you wanted to add to either anything Brandon said or anything that anyone else said this is a chance to do that before we jump into the audience Q&A. Okay great well yeah. let's jump into the audience Q&A because that really is what these webinars are about. So, um, at this point, we'll go to your questions and see what you're wondering about. As I mentioned, you can enter your questions into the Q&A, um, anything about compensation compensation strategies or any other challenges you're facing. Enter those into the Q&A and we'll address those now, and we've got some here to start with.
1: Mary, do you have one you'd like to address? Yeah, I see a question that says, um, other than market data, I'm not sure I understand how the market um, range minimum midpoint and max are established and so um, it really is just uh, market data so we purchase salary surveys from probably um, I would say 30-35 published salary surveys from groups like Towers, Mercer, Culpepper, Coupa many other institutions and we purchase these surveys we go through those books and you'll look for data let's say on a accountant And we'll go through and we'll find what the um, Twin Cities Metro for most families, the Twin Cities Metro, what it is paying at the 50th percentile for that job. Um, And then we will bring that back in and use that to set the minimum midpoint and max. So it really is market data and can express enough that it is external to the U. We want to use that external picture to help guide internal pay decisions But again, any internal pay decisions or internal um, pay rates, that's always uh, based on the ability to pay. So the ranges are the outside world and what we're offering, of course, to our people, that's our internal practice and ability to pay. They're two different things. Okay, does anyone want to add anything?
2: I think that was well done.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you. I
2: hired well. <laughs> Good job.
0: <laughs> Great. Thanks, Mary. So um, if you ask that question, hopefully we've clarified it for you. Uh, there might be follow-up questions. So f- again, feel free to uh, enter those into the Q&A. I,
3: I can take one. Okay. So there, there was a question um, about, is the goal that you would move everyone to full mastery and exceptional attainment? Um, so if you have a small team and everyone in long-term roles, is it reasonable, you know, to kind of have everybody move up? And, you know, that is a, a really good question, and it's a challenge, I think, for a lot of uh, a lot of oh. units at the university. But it really gets to your long-term talent development and compensation yeah, strategy and how they fit that's together. That's right. So I'll give you an example. I worked at uh, a Fortune 500 prior to coming to the university, and uh, the strategy there was really to bring in really bright young professionals right so these are people who had a lot of potential but were earlier in their career so they didn't necessarily get paid a ton they would get awesome experience they would develop very quickly but then the intentional strategy was after a few years we expect to lose a lot of them to other organizations we will identify those who we think have longer term potential for this organization and we will you know give them more money and, and opportunities Um, And so, you know, this is really where your ability to pay and your longer-term strategy need to come together because the reality is if you have a team, sure, they can absolutely reach mastery or exceptional uh, attainment at some point, that's going to become incredibly expensive and you probably can't afford that. Yeah. that you know what's a, a different strategy than if that's not financially viable and that's where you get the you know sometimes they're called you know academy organizations not mm-hmm. not the academy like our academy but like mm-hmm. companies where they hire young professionals they get great experience and then they expect them to move on because you can't afford to pay everybody once they've got the experience that's just one strategy but um, that's the kind of thing that you really need to be thinking through
0: great thanks Brandon Thank
2: um yes we had a question on uh, the board of regent discussions which i think is a little different than um, the past ones but it's a it's a timely question uh, given this is the time of year we do that report recently the board of regents were discussing pay on campus uh, highest paid positions and there was a comment about compensation in higher education and education in general should not be compared to the uh public-private sector, please address the role that the region expectations may have on overall HR compensation practices. And I think, um, you know, first of all, thank you for uh, listening to those discussions Um, and uh, we will be in front of them in May on the delayed February report and we hope you all tune in. but there are a couple things to keep in mind Uh, there is a board of regents policy on compensation that if you read it it's at a high level but it does give you uh, an idea of how the university goes about uh, practicing compensation and strategically planning for compensation and i would uh, suggest that after you read that you can see that philosophy in the work that the Office of Human Resources does. Um, The other piece of it is, um, there has been comments from some regions around comparing ourselves to the state of Minnesota, and we do not exclude the state of Minnesota, but in compensation and in business and at universities you are more often served well by looking at the populations that you draw employees from and you lose employees too. And for staff positions, professional and administrative, that is often our local metro area. So we would be remiss if we did not account for that. We would not be good stewards of our compensation practices if we did not look at that community and that work. Having said that, we do keep in mind what the state of Minnesota is doing, other public employers, and depending on the work involved, uh, sometimes we look at those closely. Um, and uh, you know, the Regents are welcome to ask their questions. They have other ones besides the ones mentioned here, and it is an ongoing conversation because there will continue to be challenges in the future.
3: I do want to jump in here too with uh, some engagement data that speaks to this, because th- this question comes up a lot, which yeah. who should we compare yeah. our workforce to? And we do an employee engagement survey here at the university, and we're able to compare the engagement level of our um, employees with the engagement level of employees in all sorts of other industries, and we look as a workforce, both faculty and staff at the university, a lot like a big Fortune 500 in that we have very highly engaged very highly committed and dedicated very highly motivated employees when you look at the engagement data from uh, state government workforce or even federal government workforce it is nowhere near the level of commitment and dedication and engagement that we see here at the university and so when we think about the level of effort and commitment and motivation and you know those kinds of things that we see in our workforce from an engagement perspective we are nothing like the state of minnesota
0: Thank you, Brandon. That's, that's very interesting.
3: And, and I would just
2: add, um, we, um, if you look at the ratio of pay for the top executive to uh, those uh, in the lower income levels in organizations, and I think a lot of times we're compared to maybe going corporate in our salaries, the university is in a very reasonable position it's maybe 10 to 1, 12 to 1, which is still a large ratio. But compared to um, what you see in the landscape of uh, compensation studies for executive pay, uh, it is, I would say, fairly modest for someone leading a $4 billion institution.
1: Great. Thank you, Ken, Brandon, Mary. So I'm going to try to boil together about six different questions that have come in <laughs> Awesome. That are all kind of getting at the same thing. There's a little technical part and then kind of a boiling of the rest. So the technical questions were, um, can you repeat what you've said about something relating to 3% mm-hmm. as it related to the ranges? So very quickly, um, the slide had said just to try to hire, pe- or hire people at least, never below 3% above the minimum. The reason for that is because each year those ranges move. Uh, They move by what we think is happening in the outside market, and generally that's going to be 2 to 3 percent. So if you bring somebody in or have a group of people that are clustered right near that bottom of that range and it moves, they'll drop beneath it. And then there's kind of a mandated salary increase, and no one likes to be reactive on those things. You'd rather be proactive. Um, Somebody asked about bonuses and if they're factored into the numbers that are used to set salary for our ranges. They're not, and that's not practice um, in compensation across, you know, the United States. Bonuses are not factored in. It's always base to base. So when you set your range minimum, midpoint, max, it's base salary. So that should be considered too. If you know that you've got a person, let's say in a role, a high-level role, that might be eligible for a bonus elsewhere, just put that into those bar charts. That's another variable, right? The pay, and then there's like incentive. So how can you kick up maybe some other um, bar in that chart to try to offset that. Um, again, knowing what's motivating that person. But then the boiling, um, kind of the melting together of all these different questions they are all related to the merit increase. Mm-hmm. So a lot around um, merit increases, limited merit increases, uh, merit increases that really kind of just come up equal nose to nose with the cost of living adjustment. Um, so. What I like to say about merit increases, um, what we're really trying to do as an organization is pay for performance. And I think so often organizations and managers put so much and too much on the back of the merit pay program. Merit pay program, usually for companies I've worked at or other people I talk to who are compensation professionals, we network you know, very um, frequently. Most organizations do set their merit equal or somewhere very, very close to the cost of living adjustment. Organizations I think find it very hard when payroll is probably their biggest expense, also their biggest investment, and it's very hard to um, figure out how to fund that any more richly than the cost of living. So you're looking at this fund and it's usually a number that anytime you give somebody more than it, because it's set to cost of living, you end up having to give someone like really essentially a pay decrease because their salary won't keep up with inflation. So um, what we try to say, you know, that that concern or conversation that goes around and around and it gets tossed uh, around a lot in every organization, we try to say, think about pay for performance as much more than that. Don't make merit do all the work for you. It's, um, you could argue it's one of the smaller vehicles. So if you remember the slide that talked about the time of hire, uh, I have heard managers at the U say, well, I found a, a superstar. Um, they, are, they are going to make the biggest difference in our department, but I had to bring them in low because I had two other people that were really low in the range, were lucky they accepted the offer, but um, it was, it was nerve wracking. So if you really do expect that that person is going to be the new team leader and the person that makes a difference, I would say go ahead and be more aggressive with that offer if you have the budget. Um, then the time of promotion, that's another time to look at pay for performance and telling the person that they're raised is because of how well they performed. Mm-hmm. We do uh, that all the time. There's the merit and then there's these periodic in-range adjustments where when you go and look at a team and you're going to give adjustments, you give more to the people that are performing Um, you know at full mastery but I think so oftentimes too it's telling people that you are right at this moment paying for performance so they see it and they know that that's what's happening yeah thank you yeah don't make merit do so much of the work okay
0: that's a great message yeah so thank you so much to everyone who submitted a question Um, I think we've addressed several of them today hopefully and many of them were bundled in together Um, but thank you to Brandon Ken and Mary for being with us here today thanks everyone we hope you found this information today useful and relevant, and we look forward to talking again with you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Supervisory Development Course Podcast. If you have any questions regarding rewards and compensation, please visit humanresources.umn.edu or email OHR at The Supervisory Development Course Podcast is created by Leadership and Talent Development Within the Office of Human Resources at the University of Minnesota. If you have questions regarding supervisory development, please email us at ltdumn.edu.